the more I get into these prophets, the more I'm asking myself, why did I get into these prophets? Quite frankly, earlier this week, I thought, okay, I think I've got a handle on this. I think I've figured it out. I've got the formula. I've got got it all in place. But the more I kept thinking about it, the the more tension I saw and the less less boxed in this prophet Joel became to me. Part of it is trying to understand what happens in the first half of of the prophecy. God sends locusts on the land. Not just one swarm of locusts and not just two or three, but four. Four swarms of, swarms of locusts come upon the land. And we try to figure that out and our mind jumps to all kinds of conclusions. Last Sunday after service, if you were here you may realize this, but I was looking out the back window and I, out toward the street and I, I saw this swarm of insects above the windows there. And I thought, what in the world is that? And quickly found out that there was a swarm of bees. And some of you experienced that as you left church. And some of you weren't able to leave church because of the swarm of bees. They were up in the bell tower. They were flying around. They ended up in a tree across the street. They were in this tree over here. And I thought, like I think I said to a couple of people, that's too bad that wasn't next week when we're talking about Joel and the locusts because that would be kind of cool, right? And then Monday, I left work and I came up to my car and it was just covered with gnats. I mean, just gnats everywhere. And now I'm starting to get nervous. Because I'm thinking, okay, we have bees on Sunday, we got gnats on Monday, and we got locusts we're talking about. Where is this headed, right? And our mind automatically jumps to that. I, I, like you probably, read things in the past couple of weeks, people's comments about the hurricanes and the earthquake, and making value judgments, moralistic judgments, about why that happened. And, and people making accusations. We're going to talk a little bit more about this particular thing in a couple of weeks. But isn't it interesting that when people make those statements, whatever side or the perspective they come from, that when they make those statements about why the hurricane came and a moral kind of judgment, it's always about somebody else and what they're doing. It's not possible that God might have done that because of what I'm doing. But we jump to these conclusions. And when you read a book like, like Joel, this prophecy, we want to say, well, what is, what's the parallel in our world? And quite frankly, I'm not sure there is a parallel because this isn't a, locusts aren't coming on all the nations of the earth. They're just coming on God's people. This is on Israel. And if we were to, I guess if we found a parallel, it would be that maybe tornadoes just jump from church to church all over our land. This is a word about God's people not being God's people. This is a word about God's people rejecting him, choosing self rather than their creator. And the consequences of that, because sin always leads us away from God toward destruction. There's no way around it. Because the source of life and hope and grace and all that is good is God. And when we choose to walk away from him, when we choose to turn away from him, we are walking away from life and grace and joy and all that we were created to experience. We often are walking away from the blessings of God himself. You know, land to the Israelites was always the, the primary sign of God's blessing. 
to Abraham. God says, I'm going to make your descendants as great as the stars. And they're going to come and live in this land where you're now standing. As the people are in Egypt and Moses goes to talk with them, that what is going to draw them out is not just I'm going to free you from slavery, but I'm going to free you from slavery so that you can inherit this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey and everything positive you can think of. This the land that is productive and abundant and sustaining to you and beyond. And when they get there, it is so productive that the spies go into the land. They see grapes so big, they carry them on poles. No wonder God is irritated with Israel when they come across up to the Jordan River and say, you know what? I don't know. Those giants look awfully big. Those walls look awfully thick. Thanks, but no thanks. We'll go back to Egypt. What they're saying is, God, you've promised us these great blessings, but you know what? What we can do ourselves is better than the blessings that you could ever give us. The land has always been important to them, the sign of God's blessing. I I wonder if if the land wasn't going to be the primary witness to what it looks like for people to follow Yahweh. That when you follow Yahweh, you live in this life of abundance. And all the nations around Israel would look at them and say, Huh, so that's what it looks like to follow Yahweh. We don't get that from our gods. Tell us more about this Yahweh you worship. But instead, the Israelites abuse the land and misuse the land and manipulate the land. They use it selfishly. They even worship the land. And isn't that one of our our biggest struggles is to worship the blessings of God? God gives us God gives us the ability to, to live. He gives us wealth. He gives us education. He gives us relationships. He pours all these blessings into our lives. And we have a tendency to worship the blessings instead of the one who gives us the blessings. And we become more enamored with what God can give us than God himself. And what ends up happening is it leads us away from God. Away from the source of those blessings. And God's word to Israel is... Return to me. It's a common, it's a common re- command to the people. When they have turned away from him, he says, return to me. Come back to me. Tozer said that we, God takes nine steps toward us, but we have to take the tenth step. And the tenth step is returning. Repenting, acknowledging our need for God, acknowledging that we have sinned, acknowledging that we have walked away from our creator, acknowledging that our life is meaningless without him. That all the things that we may accumulate in this world, all the blessings that we may want to worship, shrivel up into nothingness without the creator who gives them. And we recognize that. And we acknowledge that. And so he says to the people, you know, you, you rend your garments. You, you go around in mourning. You put sackcloth and, and ashes on. And that's, that's okay. But what I really want is your heart. What I really want from you is that you want me. That you recognize who I am. 
and that you want what I want, what I offer to give you, that you want me at the center of your life. Return to me. And you begin to understand, when we return, we begin to understand the nature of who God is. As God tells Moses in Exodus 34, I am patient and compassionate and loving and gracious and kind. More than you could ever dream or imagine. He says the same thing in Joel's prophecy. What happens when we return and we repent, it's, it's not that doing that sort of triggers God's blessings. But rather, when we return, when we repent, when we acknowledge our need for God, we open the gate to allow God's blessings into our lives. This is one of the things that, that we, we struggle with because sometimes I think our view of God is such that he doesn't really want to give us blessings. And so we have to do something to try to trigger those. But that's the view of all the other gods that the nations around Israel worship. But Yahweh, Yahweh can't wait to give us blessings. Yahweh is chomping at the bit to give us blessings. He's the one who pursues us. He's the one who's after us, who in love and kindness and grace that Hosea talks about. This is our God. The problem is we don't want the blessings he wants to give us. We build walls. And God is right up against the walls. But we say, no, I'd rather have my own way. I'd rather find my own things. But the minute we acknowledge our need for God, we open the gates and the blessings pour in. That is the, this is the God that we worship. This is Yahweh. This is our God. And when, when we allow God to pour out his abundance on us, then we see what Joel talks about in the second half of this prophecy. It is interesting to me that many of the prophets have, I'd say, seven-eighths of their prophecy is all about judgment. And then, with you know, other things interspersed, but it's primarily turn around. This is bad. God, is, God needs to address this in your, in your lives, individually and corporately. And then at the end, there's hope. But, but in Joel, the first half is about calling them to account. But the whole second half of the prophecy is about what God wants to do to bless them. And he says, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. I love the way that's the words of that. He doesn't say, I'm going to trickle my Holy Spirit on you. I'm going to sprinkle a little bit here and there. No, he said, I'm going to pour out. I'm going to open, I'm going to open the faucet wide. In fact, they have this vision of, you know, one of those great big water pipes. And you're standing in front of it. And it just kind of knocks you over. It's just so much. This is what God does for us. He pours out his spirit upon us. And and I love the fact that he doesn't pour it out on a few people. He pours out his spirit on the people we would expect and the people we might not expect. The people we look up to and maybe people we look down on. The people of all the power in the culture, the men. And the people who have very little power and influence, the women. He pours out his spirit on the young who are maybe naive but full of great ideas and the old who are wise and we may think are past their prime. They're still going to dream dreams of the great things of God. 
And what happens when the Spirit is poured out upon us, we see it in Pentecost that we read about from Acts. Exact same word. Peter just quotes Joel's prophecy. Is that it begins to shake up things. When the Holy Spirit comes, our boxes about God are shattered. Our formulas are torn apart. And all the ways in which we think we have figured God out and we put him in our box get blown apart. And that makes us uncomfortable. I feel much more comfortable, honestly, when I'm in control of my own life. I've got everything figured out. I've got all the, all the bases covered. I've got all the holes plugged. I've got it figured out. And, and it's a lot more comfortable to just do what I have figured out to do. Because the minute God enters the picture, it's not always comfortable. And I think the reason it's not comfortable is because it reminds us that even in the blessings, we never stop needing God. And we never know where the Spirit's going to lead us. We never know how the Spirit's going to work with us. What kind of relationships, God, the Spirit is going to ask of us. What places the Spirit is going to ask us to go. What circumstances the Spirit is going to move us into. But the one thing we know, despite the fact that it may sometimes feel uncomfortable, the one constant is that we know because it's from God, it's good. And it's leading us to good. It's leading us to blessing. We may not see it in the moment. We may not understand it in the moment. But the heart of God is always good. He wants for us and for all of his people. And maybe one of the places where the Spirit challenges us the most is in how we respond to our enemies. How do we respond to people who fight against the church? How do we respond to people who fight against the kingdom? How do we respond to people who fight against us? Beginning in chapter 3, virtually, well, the first 16 verses, it's all about God's judgment on Israel's enemies. And when you read that, you think, well, that doesn't seem like the God of love. But only a God of love cares about justice. Only a God of love cares about about defeating evil. Because the alternative is that God would watch, would look at evil and say, hey, you know, nothing I can do about it. God cares deeply about evil. God cares deeply about the consequences of evil and how people are hurt by evil. And God is a God of justice. The problem is, we want sometimes to think that if God can pass judgment on people, so can we. But our calling is to trust God and his justice that is perfect and true and right. And our calling is to love our enemies. Our calling is to have the heart of God about our enemies. In Ezekiel's prophecy, he says to him, look, I'm I'm going to have to judge the nations who have been so heinous to Israel. But Ezekiel, weep over that. Weep about it. In, in chapter 18, verse 23, he says, he says to Ezekiel, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. 
I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. That's the heart of God. And I know that I am walking in the Spirit. I know that I'm in a much better place than I sometimes am. When I have that perspective. When it breaks my heart that there are people who blatantly choose to reject God. It breaks, and, and, and what I want for people is not to be, not to face judgment for what they've done. I want people to be, to have their eyes open to who God is and to be set free. And the times when I do fall into a spirit of judgment toward other people, one of the ways the Spirit speaks into my heart is to say, you do realize that you have some judgment coming too, right? And that's why Jesus can say to us, in the heart of the Father, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Because when you do that, you are acting like children of your Heavenly Father. It's a sign of the Spirit being poured out on us. When you get to the end of the prophecy... You get this image of, of the day of the Lord. He's been talking about the day of the Lord throughout this prophecy. And it's been judgment. It's been, it's been dark. It, it has been, it's been difficult words. But now when we get to the end of the prophecy. He says the day of the Lord is coming. And it will be a day that will be glorious. And the culmination of that day ultimately to come is that Yahweh says, I'm going to live with my people. I'm going to make my home with my people. And home, home is that place that we feel safe. Home is the place where we feel secure. Home is the place where we can be ourselves. We can close off the doors and and we don't have to entertain. We don't have to try to perform for people. We're just home. And what a glorious thing to know God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be home with you. And you will never feel more safe, more secure, more relaxed than when I have made my home with you. And so John writes in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his home with us, dwelled among us. It was a glimpse of what Of what's going to happen on that day. And I can't help but think of Revelation 21. Where John says, I looked and I saw before me a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God. And I witnessed God's home as a place of healing and restoration. And reconciliation. All the characteristics of the creator. In that home. Verse two, chapter 2 verse 25. Is one of those verses that I think we have a tendency to skim over when we're reading. But Joel says, God says through the prophet. I know you've been through difficult experiences. I know that the locusts have eaten everything you can see. But I am going to restore 
the years that the locust took from you. When we live with the consequences of our sin and our sinful choices, the, the enemy whispers into our ear, you'll never, be a, you'll never be out of that. You'll never get away from that. You're going to have to live with that shame and that guilt and, and the loss. You'll, you'll never be free from that. But God says, I can restore that. I can make you new. I can bring you through that. And I will change the perspective you have about that. And instead of the years being lost, I can actually redeem that. If we will let him. It comes back to that pivot point in the book. The pivot point of the prophecy, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, return to me. Repent. Acknowledge that you need me. It is, it is the gate, it's the door that opens us to God's amazing blessings. So the question is, do we want that? Are we ready in our faulting, failing way to say, God, I want what you want. I want to be who you created me to be. And I can never even be close without you. So here's my life. And I surrender to you, not once and then I'm done, but every day, every moment, I need you. And find that God is enough, that he's good, that he's for us, that his heart and his activity is grace. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for the word that you've given to us through the prophet of your desires for us. Help us to see you for who you are. That we might open ourselves to you this day and every day through the grace of Christ. Amen.